Hi, I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. In this episode of Negotiation in Real Life, we talk with Ashley Shield. Ashley is an Executive Director at De Jong Reed. He's a professional business advisor providing strategic planning that assists individuals and corporations who are experiencing financial difficulties. Ashley is a specialist in dealing with banks and receivers and court-appointed liquidators and providing legal ways to restructure and deal with the burden of unmanageable financial commitments. Having been the principal of his own accountancy firm, Ashley has a strong background in taxation and business services accounting. He also has a passion for assisting company directors through the insolvency framework. In our conversation today, we talk about dealing with property shortfalls in a changing market, negotiating to avoid bankruptcy, the importance of building a reputation for honesty, the benefits and risks of using a third party to add credibility, the protective nature of bankruptcy, managing the personal issues in a business dispute, the importance of allowing time for people to get their stories out, helping your team develop their negotiation skills, and the importance of body language in negotiation, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed my chat with Ashley. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, welcome. It's great to be here. Well, it's a really big pleasure to have you because I know you get involved in some very interesting and quite challenging negotiations uh, with people in financial stress. So we'll have a chat about those in a minute. But before we do, perhaps you'd just like to give our listeners a bit of an overview about who you are and what you do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so um, I'm one of the executive directors of Deong Reed. And uh, as a firm, we specialise in helping uh, individuals and companies who are in financial trouble. So we may help them in restructuring their business, shutting down their business, or um, in the personal levels, uh, dealing with them potentially having to go bankrupt or do uh, various other forms of um, insolvencies. And uh, we, we, a big part of what we focus on is actually just helping hold people's hands through that process. So dealing with, if it is a corporate, there might be personal negotiations on the back of it. Um, and try and avoid bankruptcy, or sometimes we actually help people go through the bankruptcy because the, the debts are too high or whatever the case may be. So yeah, our focus is very much at that sort of the back end, but before it gets to a insolvency practitioner. Yeah, really interesting work, I think. And I think what I'm going to explore a little bit as we go through this is, you know, the fact that you're actually there helping them do their own negotiations as well. So giving them that sort of negotiation advice. Um, can I ask, how did you get into this sort of work? It's it's obviously fairly unique work. What uh, sort of background do you bring to it? 
Yeah, so, well, originally I I started off, um, well, I've had a very eclectic career as a, a lot of us do in uh, over the years, but um, uh, how I found getting involved with Hank Deong of Deong Reed was that um, I was his accountant, so I had my own tax practice. And he would come to me with clients who needed help in getting uh, tax returns brought up to speed. And uh, and then I would help them and I'd saw what he did. And it's a bit like the old... Uh, uh, the old ad from you know when I was twenty, where they sort of said oh, I liked it so much, I uh, I bought the company. Bought the company. Well, that's right. That was the Gillette ad, wasn't it? Was it was the Gillette ad. That's, <laughs> that's it. it. Yeah. So I didn't quite buy the company straight away, but I I did get out of a tax accounting and move into this space. So, but before that, uh, I used to run hotels. I um, I was involved in um, uh, Queensland Rail for a very long time as well. So I've had uh, internal auditors and all sorts of things. So. Oh, really and interesting. I, just found, I found that all of those different pieces of um, work that I did over the past helped me come together to help people now with their own businesses. You know, so coming from either a large business or a small, I could use all those pieces of the puzzle to help people move forward. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I said um, recently on an interview that I was doing, I had a career that I used to think was really flaky for a while because I'd moved around, but it all comes together like you've just described there. So I think yeah. that's awesome. So coming then to talk about negotiations, um, what are some of the more complicated or challenging negotiations that you get involved in in your role at the moment? Yeah, so there's probably um, two areas that are heavily, and I'll sort of go into some examples, but uh, a lot of it is if we've got a company that needs to go into liquidation, these days the corporate veil or the corporate shell doesn't protect directors anywhere near as much as it used to because um, there are personal guarantees, there's caveable interests that you know people put into their their uh, clauses and and into their uh, contracts. Uh, so we often do a lot of negotiation with suppliers on the back of a liquidation to try and avoid bankruptcy. So negotiations that are tied to that. And the other thing that we've been doing a lot of work in is people with shortfalls on properties. Um, particularly those who've got heavily uh, in, um, invested in mining town properties in the in the mining town booms of about sort of seven to ten years ago, and those properties uh, have, even though in the general market you see property doing extremely well, uh, we've had a lot of clients coming through where they bought you know a property for three hundred in a town in the middle of nowhere that they've never seen. They, they grew to a million dollar property and now they're back down to 200,000 and they're caught with a massive shortfall. Mm. So they're probably the two big ones, but um, you know, there's always, you need, as you know, in negotiations, they come from all angles a lot of the time. They definitely <laughs> do. So I'm really interested then, um, perhaps if we can talk about those negotiations with the shortfalls on properties, mm. what are some of the, because I assume there what you're talking about is negotiating with the bank Yep. Um, to either allow the party to wait for a sale in case the market can turn or, you know, are there other things that you're looking for there? What are you actually trying to negotiate? Yeah, so quite, so I guess there's two parts to it. One is whether they've got other property or whether this was just an investment they did standalone. Um, quite often what we're trying to in the first instance is al allowing the bank to let the client sell the property at what we know will be a shortfall mm -hmm. uh, because they can't afford the mortgages, the rents aren't there, um, so they need to get out of it, otherwise it's just going to be a foreclosure anyway. 
So we, we negotiate with the bank to allow them to sell the property, knowing that it's going to be sold at a shortfall and then, and then separately addressing what that shortfall is once we know what the shortfall is going to be. Mm. Now, sometimes, depending on whether they've got mortgage insurance or not, we know that we're actually not going to be negotiating with the bank on the shortfall. It will be the mortgage insurer mm. that we need to deal with separately. Um, but in the first instance, you can't really sell a property um, at a loss without the bank agreeing to it unless they go uh, mortgagee in possession. Yeah. And what are some of the techniques or what do you need to bring to those negotiations to try and get a better outcome for your client? Yeah, so the most of the banks are, are being quite accepting of realising that selling it to get out when they're not being paid their mortgage is is um, is quite reasonable. So that part hasn't actually proved to be that difficult of late. Mm-hmm. Where the real difficulty comes in is dealing with the shortfall afterwards. Mm-hmm. And with a, a, a lot of the way that, I guess, coming from the insolvency background, most of the time we focus on talking. So the bank's only real power once the property is sold is to bankrupt the client. Um, so therefore, when we're talking to either the mortgage insurer or the bank, we're saying to them, okay, your only power really, if you want to take this all the way is to bankrupt someone. So we provide a report to um, either the bank or the mortgage insurer and say to them, this is what it would look like in bankruptcy. So if you actually use all the power that you have available to you, if you bankrupt them, this is all the money that will be left. Mm. So rather than go through spending 10 or 15 grand bankrupting this person, why don't we look at trying to do a settlement based on that? Yeah, fantastic. So you're actually educating the bank on what the BATNA or the best alternative is so that anything that your client puts forward that's better than that um, should be a sensible option that the bank would look at. Should be, yeah. 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 And it's and then you've you know, there, there's always the trust factor that comes yeah. in is that yeah, whether they're actually telling you the truth, uh, the whether our report is accurate and all that sort of stuff. So it's um, we actually um, have drafted our report to look very similar to what a bankruptcy trustee's report would be. So we'll actually say, um, you know, there is 100000 for instance, in the superannuation account. But if you bankrupt this person under the bankruptcy law, you're not going to get your hands on that anyway, because the law, the bankruptcy laws um, allow that to be protected. Um, there is a house here, but you've only got the husband, for instance, so therefore, in bankruptcy, you're only going to get access to um, 50% of the equity, not the whole equity. Mm. Uh, so all of those type of things we detail in the report and provide the evidence for so that they can then clearly see what they're actually, um, you know, uh, what they're up against yep. and what they're likely to get. Yeah. And you mentioned that trust is a big factor, and I can certainly imagine that that would come into play because obviously your client is the person who's borrowed from the bank and there's a vested interest in you doing things in their favour. Um, aside from obviously the fact that you've got professional obligations, is there anything that you've come up with to help create that sense of trust for the banks? Uh, well, for, for us, we, we've had, uh, we've been doing quite a lot of it. So most of the time now we've actually, um, uh, we've actually done enough of these that people have seen them. Uh, yeah. In some cases, we even had banks who didn't believe us in the start have taken it through the process to bankruptcy. Um, and then they found out that what we actually said was true. Yeah. And we're still dealing with those people again. So 
um, although unfortunate for that person that went that way. And, and again, we it, it, in that particular case, it was planned and we were okay with it. Um, but it actually allowed us to develop a further level of, uh, of trust as a professional. And yeah. I often find that um, the banks and any other creditor really, having a third party does actually add a level of credibility that you're willing to actually show that. Mm. Um, that that you have got someone else in. We've got a prof professional obligation, you know, not necessarily we can't just make stuff up. So yeah. um, so that does help in some negotiations. Uh, sometimes it could actually work against you. And, uh, and where that is the case, we will often say to a client, look, you do this, we'll help provide the documents because they think if you, you're paying a professional, then you must have more money than you otherwise had. <laughs> yeah, so, but that's right, isn't it? You've really got to think in advance of the negotiation, who's the right person to go and do this. And That's correct, yeah. Um, you know, is, is your reputation and your prior experience with them going to outweigh the fact that um, there's an indication of funds being available from somewhere if you can afford um, de Jong Raid? Yeah, yeah. The, the other, I guess the other tool, um, just talking about the tools that we use is that it's often about pulling together a history as well. So, you know, we, I've got a, a client that owed in shortfalls about $1.2 million on two mining town properties as it was. Um, but the, the client in question also ended up with a number of medical, personal medical issues. Um, yeah and stopped being able to earn, stopped being able to, um, so there was a whole range of issues as well. So when we negotiated, we didn't just say, here's the asset position, but we also talked about what the reason why it got to this place. Um, so we, we were able to provide appropriate medical reports that, that assisted in the case. Um, and, and that then helped put together a, a bigger picture of a story, not just the financial, which then adds to the weight of the conversation you're having in negotiation. And in that case, we were able to settle it out for $29,000. Now, that's yeah. a bit of a miracle one. It's not one yeah. that we get, it's not that good a number all the time, but you know, by putting the whole weight of the picture with the bank, they were yeah. able to go, okay, you know, this is a genuine case that's just got out of control. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you say you wouldn't negotiate that case, but then the average client wouldn't have that terrible sort of health situation that they've got to have gone through to get there. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting, I guess, particularly when you're talking about the banking sector and, you know, things that have come out of the Royal Commission and banks starting to treat people a little bit more as a human, um, looking mm. at some of those things that perhaps they might not have taken account those health issues and, and that sort of situation, you know, a few years back. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot of people are embarrassed to talk about that and don't want to use it as an excuse, but mm. it is actually a contributing factor that what brought someone to that place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that happens at the corporate level as well. You know, a company gets sick because one of the other bigger companies fell over and, you know, they were doing all things right until the company that, you know, another company falls down. Oh, it's happening all the time and the building yeah. industry is the classic, isn't it? It is at the moment, and I think it's just the first of the industries that we're going to see that in. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So if we, we've sort of looked at some of those negotiations around property shortfalls, mm. is are they different? Do you have to approach those differently to the supplier agreements that you talked about negotiating earlier? Um, 
In some cases, yes, and others, no. So we've always believed that, you know, again, uh, whether it's a supplier or the bank, um, you've got to look at what power the um, uh, the creditor has against you and then go, okay, well, if that power is bankruptcy, which ultimately most personal guarantees have, um, is let them know what the end result is going to be. If you use your power and, and, you know, we have clients ring up going, oh, they're threatening bankruptcy on me. Well, okay, is that actually as bad as you think it is? Let's have a look at what bankruptcy looks like to you. And one of the interesting things with the Bankruptcy Act is that it's actually not a penal act. So it's not actually designed to give you a slap across the face and say you're a bad person because you couldn't pay your bills. It's actually designed to be a protective act. And it's actually there to, if you have got yourself into a situation where you can't pay your bills, well, this act will actually put a little um, cover over you, a little blanket around you, and and protect you from those creditors making your life um you know living misery for the next seven to ten years um now there are costs for that protection which is you know that you may have to pay some of the money back if you've got assets you might need to sell them and give them in um, but it is actually there to protect you so when someone's threatening a creditor is really going i'm going to go after you i'm going to take all this stuff um, and there is a real fear around bankruptcy. Like people think that someone's going to come in and take the iPad off their daughter. Um, and, you know, and I've had that, that actual conversation, you know, is my daughter's school computer going to be taken? And, you know, and that's not what the act's there for. So once a client understands um, what the act can and can't protect them from, it then changes how you can look at the negotiations. So you can go in there going, look, this is all I've got left. You can take that because that's all that's there or we can try and do a deal. And, you know, ultimately, most times people will lose, um, a creditor will get less if they do actually bankrupt them than if they do actually negotiate a settlement. Um, not all the time. Sometimes there are plenty of assets there, but um, most of the time, the, the belief of what you'll get out of bankruptcy is a lot less than the reality. So therefore letting someone clearly see that um, helps helps when you're negotiating with anyone. Yeah, and of course, I guess the other thing is that once the assets become part of the bankruptcy, then you've got the costs of the trustee that aren't any longer available to the creditors. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So then As you say, a, a it doesn't come factors. for free. Nothing comes for free, no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so once again, I, I think there's this common theme in, in what you've been talking about of how important it is for both parties to understand what happens if there's not a negotiation, negotiated mm. settlement. And, you know, your role seems to be very much educating on both sides to say, well, this is what it looks like. So you can make a decision as to what makes sense um, in those negotiations. Yes, yeah. And I, and I think... Um, you know, sometimes if you can take the personal out of it, and, mm. and particularly we find this uh, in the with the creditors from the on the back of a company going into liquidation, um, sometimes it can actually get quite personal because you know they've been operating together for ten or fifteen years as a supplier and, and customer, and then you know for whatever reason the company falls over, and then you're left with a shortfall. Well. My, in, and in my space, particularly, I work in the smaller business market. So it's a lot more personal than yeah. it is at, 
you know, Telstra dealing with Optus or something like that. So when you, yeah, and they, you know, sometimes, you know, they know each other's kids and there's, you know, they, it's quite, quite a unique situation. So people feel like you're taking food out of their mouth. So you've got to try and take a little bit of the personal out and go, okay, here's the financial issues. Um, and then try and manage that, you know, if, if the relationship's gone too sour, and sometimes people try and put their head in the sand, as I'm sure you've seen a hundred times, and that actually creates more anger. So actually getting on the front foot and talking to them and not ignoring them can really help sometimes to, to take out the personal angst and allow you just to focus on the actual financial issues in front of you. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And as you said, I mean, certainly a lot of the things that come to me in mediation come because somebody stuck their head in the sand and ignored it. Um, and the other party feels that this is their only alternative now is to go down some sort of um, mediation or legal route. Yeah. Um, how do you manage that with your clients? You know, when they've got these personal issues that are there, um, how do you help them address that? So um, it's a really good question. Um, sometimes it actually depends on how bad it's got. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, if we are engaged, a lot of it is, is that you open the door of communication with the other side. So you go, look, you know, the guy knows he's put his head in the sand, Mr. Creditor, um, but he's now got us involved because he knows he can't ignore it. And then we start talking to them and providing them a level of information that actually can help them make a more informed decision about their path. Yeah. Um, yeah, and whether that might be, look, you need to give us a month because we've got to try and sort out the mess um, or look, it's too far gone. There's just nothing there anymore. But the unknown often creates the angst more than the known. So yeah. communication is... I think it's 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 uh, key in every part of your life, isn't it? So it so um, is. It's no different, no different in this space. Yeah, it's interesting because I think what I'm hearing there is you'll go in and and you address the issue, but you're not necessarily there to actually restore the relationship or bring the two of them together. It's just about how do you um, manage the expectations of the other side and and give them a reason so that you can then engage them in the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, which is is probably where what I do is slightly different in that often I have to go in and actually address some of these personal issues um, yes, at the yeah. same time. So, mm. but yeah, you do become a bit of a psychologist as well as a financial expert and all those other things. Yeah, I think uh, for, I think the 15 years we've been in operation, the one thing that we make sure of every morning is that there's a tissue box in the, every boardroom table. So it's... Yeah. Uh, it does get very emotional and, and, you know, you've got to keep people calm because it can get very aggressive because yes. the, there are people who feel as if you're taking food off the table of their kids and, and, and especially in this small and micro market uh, that happens. So you've yeah. really got to calm down that and get it back to the reality. And, you know, we may never, we may never fix the relationship between them, but we allow them to both move on from where they are because yeah. we can at least bring a finality to it somehow. Yeah, and that's, once again, that's what I always say in mediations. It's my goal is for you to get this resolved so that you can go on and live your best life mm. um, rather than stewing on this for the end of time. And, and that just breaks people, the stewing. Mm. You know, it, it really does. So yeah, it's uh, good to try and avoid that where we can. Yeah. So along the way, Ashley, what have been some of the, the moments or some of the experiences that you've had that you've really taken on board to build your own skills in negotiation? Are there any 
situations that have happened in the past that you go, oh my God, that was such a learning experience? Uh, again, you're asking very good questions today, Nicole. Um, <laughs> look, I, I think probably the biggest one that I learned was that is, is how emotional it can be and the fact that you do need to allow people time to talk. They've got to get their story out. That was one where I, early on, um, you know, you, you'd go, look, here's my information. You just go away. You should digest that the way that I would digest it. And um, but they sometimes they can't even get to a point of digesting it until they've had their chance to speak. And um, so quite often when we are engaged to try and deal with a number of creditors, I'll often get on the phone or my staff will get on the phone and we actually have to let the vent occur. So it's, you know, I often call it, let's do the vent calls, let the vents come out, let everyone talk, find out their versions of events. And then we can come back and go, okay, here's, here are some more of the facts. But um, until you can break through the emotional, the facts often don't count. Yeah. Um, and so, and being an accountant, I'm very much uh, the numbers are here in front of you. Um, and it took me quite a while to realize, um, you know, I'm, I'm not the smartest egg in the shed on some of these things. So it <laughs> took me a while to realize that sometimes you've got to let that vent occur before anyone can actually see the real facts. Yeah, um, I, I'm, and... I'm sure you're underplaying your skills there, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> we, but, we, but I think you're right. Not. And, you know, it's it's once again, it's one of the things that I will often hear in, in mediation when the emotion starts coming out is, you know, one of the lawyers might talk around and say, can we just stick to the facts here? Can we just stick? To... And it's like, well, until we've got past that, you're right. Um, you just can't move forward. And, and there are times where someone's emotions, you know, I, I learned that I, I battled through trying to negotiate a, um, it was a, a creditor who was, um, uh, after his company had gone into liquidation, there was a personal guarantee. Um, they had a caveat on the house. So that actually meant that they thought they had more power. Um, but as it turned out, the, the, the house was underwater with the bank. So there was nothing left for the caveat. And I fought and I fought and I fought. And um, I think this this went on for three or four months longer than it probably should have. But then I, I got to a point where I realized that I was never getting past the emotional part. Yeah. So um, so sometimes you I've, I've learned to recognize now where I'm not going to get past the emotional and you've got to give the other side their pound of flesh. And then you've got to work out how to give that pound of flesh without it actually you know, you know killing the other side. Yeah. Um, so I have learned sometimes that no matter how logical I can be and, um, and every document I can give, if I, if I can't break that emotional, then you've just got to accept that you can't. You've got to, you've got to find a way of giving the pound of flesh. Yeah, yeah. No, very good advice. Mm. Now, you also have obviously a team of people that work with you and um, people coming up the ranks. Um, how do you share some of your knowledge and how do you train up your junior people to build their negotiation skills? Yeah. Um, for, for me, I always believe that the only way you learn these things is on the job. So if we're, you know, if we're doing these venting calls, um, I mean, they're quite emotional as well. They could be really hard on someone junior. So we'll always do, I'll always do those together with yeah. someone. Um, so that they can actually uh, hear what's being said, um, understand, and then we can do a debrief after each phone call. Um, so most of most of the time for us in negotiations, it's on the job. Um, 
you never we don't ever go into a room pretty much on our own uh we normally mm. always try and bring someone yeah uh, but sometimes it's, it's also just seeing two two viewpoints yeah. um and uh um and i'm sure when you're around the mediation table that that uh, multiple viewpoints you see it very differently to what both sides are seeing um so so for us training up in all of these skills is it's life experience it doesn't come it doesn't come from a textbook and uh, and yes there are techniques and all the rest of it but it's about understanding and seeing what's happening live on the screen or live in front of you um so yeah most of it's it's um on the job unfortunately yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> no look and i think i think that's really important i think what i what you've talked about there is actually doing that debrief after those big calls is the part that's often missing mm. um, because those debriefs are really where you get, you know, I always say after every negotiation, stop and spend a minute going, what's one thing we did well in that negotiation? What's one thing we could have done differently? And even if you just do that, um, that will build your skills over time. Of course, I do believe that there is a framework that will guide you through and help you put these all into context. Um, you know, I'd hate mm. to diss um, formal negotiation training as well, but you're right. <laughs> the, the training only gives you a strategy of what to, to, to look for. And, you know, you've, you've come across, you know, you're already talking about everything that you're doing is about understanding the BATNA, for example, the, the best alternative. Um, so you're already doing that in practice. Um, but, you know, I think having that framework can help as you go up to sort of make things comprehensive, but that on the job training and, and I love the idea of actually always having two people together for both the value of the different um, perspectives that you've mentioned and the great learning opportunities. And, and, and one of the things, that, and I, not only in negotiations, is that where I often say to people is, okay, so what did you take out of that? So when I'm training a junior, you know, what did you see happen in there? Um, and then you see what they, you understand what they did see, and then you talk about the bits that they may not have seen. Because, yeah. you, know, they, you know, sometimes it's, it's about the subtle way you might do something. It's like, you know, if you've got the formal information, not handing that over too early. Yep. Um, having the chat first and then and, and getting them to notice that oh you didn't actually give them anything on in writing until 40 minutes in or 50 minutes in yeah. um, you know why did it take so long well because we weren't ready for them to receive the information or whatever the case may be yeah really really interesting mm. and you know I think that whole thing about communication it's often what's not said um, that's just as important and listening with your eyes as well as your ears oh. I was never a massive believer in, you know, in my early part of my career, I didn't really believe in the whole body language thing, but uh, I'm, I'm a absolute uh, convert to it now. And you can, you can see what's happening before you'll ever hear it happening. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely fabulous, Ashley. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I think you must have had some very, very interesting negotiations that you've been <laughs> through. Um, for people who wanted to reach out and learn more about what you do and how you can help, um, what would be the best way for someone to contact you? Um, so uh, they can go to the website and all of our details, both my, my personal emails and mobiles are there. Um, we've got, um, they can book uh, meetings directly via the website or they can just uh, give, give us a call um, on my mobile um, uh, just straight from there and we can have a chat. Yeah. Fantastic. And I'll make sure that those details for the website and all your contact details are on the show notes for the podcast as well. Awesome. Thank you. So I've enjoyed our chat. Thank you very much for coming on the show today.
been an absolute pleasure and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, view presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application form. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.